Once a quarter, Eagle Alpha's Director of Data Strategy and Analytics, Ronan Crossan, is joined by Peter Green and Ben Cozen from New York law firm Lowenstein Sandler. These conversations are part of Eagle Alpha's client-only monthly legal workshops. In this episode, Peter and Ben discussed the quarter's most pertinent topic in the alternative data industry surrounding mobile app data provider AppAnnie and the SEC's decision to charge them with securities fraud. The group addresses the confusion surrounding the use of insider trading law in the securities fraud case, its impact on the decision on the wider market, and provides expert advice for app data buyers following the SEC's decision. Please enjoy this dialogue between Peter Green, Ben Cozen, and your host, Ronan Crossan. So we wanted to take this chance. And of course, if you have questions as you go, we're happy to go in whatever direction folks want. But Ben and I just thought we'd take a chance to spend about 30 minutes talking about what we've seen this year and what we expect for next year. Hard to start with anything else from a legal and compliance standpoint in the alt data space other than the app Annie case. Ben and I have talked for years about, and those of you might have heard our thoughts on App Annie over the last month or two, we can offer even some more today. Those who, view, who have heard us talk over the last couple of years have heard us say that we think an alt data case is coming. We think an alt data case is coming. And finally, one has come. But it was, I think, fair to admit, not the case we all expected. The App Annie case, and I'll just spend a couple minutes on it, was a case against a provider. And so it was not a case against... Uh, consumers of that provider's data, that is buy side hedge funders or VC firms or PE firms. And that case centered around the SEC's allegations that App Annie, in collecting data from app users, that's you and me when we use an app, and in selling that data to hedge funds, that App Annie had misrepresented to both groups. And that as a consequence of that misrepresentation, because App Annie knew that its data was being sold to hedge funds for use by hedge funds in connection with the purchase or sale of a security, that App Annie had violated the securities laws. Somewhat of a novel theory, and one that at least one SEC commissioner objected to, that is the in connection with purchase and sale of a security. But nevertheless, as with most SEC actions, App Annie ultimately agreed to a settlement and so none of these issues will be litigated, which is an important fact. So what were the misrepresentations? The first misrepresentation, as I said, was App Annie said to Ben Cozen, in essence, when Ben Cozen goes and uses an app, his data, as we know, is collected by the app if Ben gives permission for it. There have been some recent changes to iOS that allow Ben very clearly to opt out from that sort of tracking, which is a welcome development. But assuming Ben says it's okay to track me, Ben's understanding is that his data will be used and potentially sold on by his app provider on a de-identified, anonymized basis and just dumped into a bunch of algorithm with a bunch of other data. Turns out App Annie, by the order, admitted that it, it wasn't entirely telling the truth to the app providers who were providing data to App Annie, that it wasn't in fact de-identifying, anonymizing, and dumping all that data in on an aggregated basis, really that's the key point, with other data. So number one, App Annie didn't tell the truth, it seems, to the app providers who supply App Annie with data. Then the hedge funds, our clients, you all on this phone, who have been so very careful in diligencing, onboarding, and negotiating contracts with the likes of App Annie over the years, and really hold App Annie and everyone else's feet to the fire to make sure you get representations around data provenance. That is, that the data we're selling to you, hedge fund, 
is clean. And by clean, we mean that it doesn't infringe or violate the rights of any third party. We're allowed to sell it to you without breaching any of those rights. And you're allowed to use it for your purpose. That is financial modeling and investing in securities without breaching any obligation, covenant, or duty. We get some facsimile of that representation if we're doing a good job, and we believe the industry is, in all of our data purchase agreements. And so AppAnny would and others would give reps along those lines. And it turns out those reps weren't true because AppAnny knew that it was manipulating data and that it was using data in a way it wasn't supposed to. And so because of that, hedge funds hadn't done anything wrong. They had done good diligence. They asked the right questions. Someone just misled them. We all know you can do good diligence and the SEC wants you to do good diligence and you can't just step over diligence, not do it. But even if you do good diligence, sometimes you can get duped. And that's what happened here. So the SEC made the important decision here that, hey, we think the hedge funds did a good job. They asked the right questions. They just got duped. My word, not the SEC's. And as a consequence, we're not going to go after the hedge funds. We're just going to go after App Annie because App Annie made misrepresentations to the app provider and to the hedge fund. That's sort of, a, in a nutshell, a five-minute summary of this very important action. Well, what do we think that means? And, then, and I'll turn it over to Ben for a couple minutes. What do we think that means? It means that, one, all the things you've been doing that we've been preaching all these years. One, make sure you send out a good DDQ and you review the responses. Two, make sure you have a follow-up diligence and call and ask a lot of questions, most notably about data provenance. Memorialize that follow-up call, put a memo in your file. And three, negotiate an agreement, as I just discussed, with robust representations and warranties around, most importantly, data providence. You can do all three of those things, a DDQ, a follow-up diligence call, and negotiate an agreement, at least so far. And what the SEC said in the App Annie case, without saying it expressly, is that's pretty good. We like that. We think you've done a good job. That's best practice at the moment. And if someone dupes you and you're not consciously avoiding or disregarding the fact that they might have duped you, someone dupes you, that's okay because you've done those three things that I just discussed. So that was a good development for our evaluation of what our clients should be doing and what the industry should be doing. But it's also a warning. And the warning is, hey, next year, the year after, whenever it might be, when we bring our next data case, and we know the SEC already is poking around at other places, other data providers, when we bring our next data case, or at least that's the scuttle, when we bring our next data case, perhaps next time, not only will we bring it against the provider, but we'll also bring a, an insider trading, a securities case against the purchaser, the hedge fund purchasers of that data, if they haven't done sufficient diligence or if they have consciously disregarded any red flags whatsoever. And so we think it's a warning sign to the industry. We think that the next case probably, again, we're wrong the first time. So we think the next case probably does involve hedge fund managers. And what this shows you more than anything else, and then I'll stop here and let Ben talk for a few minutes. What this shows you more than anything else is the SEC absolutely, and we know this from routine examinations, absolutely is starting to look at the data consumed by hedge fund managers. I think that to me, it's an unbelievable summary, Peter. I think I agree with everything you just said. I guess the fun part of, of this particular session is kind of predicting and hope, you know, hopefully we're a little bit better than the, than the weather people, but we're going to see more inquiries, I think, for managers that use data significantly in, in their investment process. We know, you know, there may be through subpoena power, otherwise the SEC is looking at other data vendors, as Peter mentioned, and asking those data vendors to disclose their clients. This way, they then know who is using what vendor, and that becomes, you know, they can start building 
pathways and, and roadmaps to potential cases or potential re-rating people in terms of their risk assessment. Uh, because I think as, as we've talked about in the past, the SEC, as far as the way its exam program works, it is not arbitrary. They do have a kind of a more scientific way than for sure they used to 15 years ago of a, determining who gets examined when and who's on a higher risk profile than someone else. And so if they start detecting there's a pattern of people using particular vendors that may be of concern to the SEC, you may be, be seeing an, you know, an investigation, an exam, an inquiry more quickly than you otherwise would without the evaluation of the vendors. And the vendors obviously are in some ways low-hanging fruit for them in some respects because they can get easy access to the customer list to figure out who all the people, who are the fund clients that are, that are using this stuff. So that, that's kind of, I think, prediction one. In terms of prediction two, and you know, on a more positive note, I think we are going to continue to see proliferation of the utilization of this type of data in the investment process. Hopefully, you know, people are getting smarter and more refined in terms of how they use it and, and, and what outcomes it can help generate. But I think the other thing we're going to start to see, as Peter kind of alluded to, is an expectation in an exam that if you are a data user, that you do have kind of a, like a basic set of robust processes and procedures for evaluating data vendors. And there's going to be sort of a consistency that they're going to expect. And unlike certain other areas where they were maybe more conscious of the size and resources of the organization, I'm not so sure they're going to have as much sympathy, and this is purely my opinion, for firms that use data that don't have that kind of process. Because as Peter described, it's not really that complex or costly of a process. It means having a good DDQ, spending the time on the, on the phone with the vendor, and negotiating good reps in your contract. Those are not things that necessarily require a multi-million dollar cybersecurity infrastructure plan that a $500 million manager would be burdened with versus a $5 billion manager or $50 billion manager. So, you know, as soon as you say in any exam, you're an active user of alternative data, you should expect to receive pretty quick scrutiny of that. And they're going to want to see what you can do. One other thing that I don't know that Peter mentioned, and I think it kind of does vary by organization is, you know, having a compliance a consistent way you approach your compliance memos for why you've approved a vendor. And I think it's also always helpful to have rejections of vendors from time to time. And maybe you don't have any, we're not saying just reject a vendor to have a rejection, but you know, it's good to see that if you're evaluating vendors in a significant way, that on occasion you've rejected someone and you've, you know, you've noted that. You don't necessarily need to write down why you rejected them. They obviously have not passed the processes and procedures that you've set up in place in order to satisfy the client's function and or the actual investment need. So with that, I'll pause, Peter. I don't know if, you know, if we probably turn to some other topics beyond App Annie and these issues, but these are certainly most top of mind and should be continue to be most top of mind because they're most top of mind for the regulator. That was great. The only thing I'll add is that makes a good point about the rejection. I think it's worth talking about for a second. We tell clients sometimes, you know, if a clients say, that the SEC comes in on a routine exam, Ben, and says, Hey, show us your restricted list. And it's one of the requests. And the client says, Oh, here it is. And the SEC says, This is empty. And the client says, Oh, yeah, we didn't, we didn't have any, any names to put on the restricted list in the entirety of the exam period, a two year period or one year period, whatever it is. You know, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, of course, but these are hedge funds who are talking to experts and management and, and the like. And the SEC says, Come on, how could that be true that in two years, there, there was never an occasion for you, even conservatively, to say, hey, we probably should put that on the restricted list. Maybe we came into contact information with information that was questionable. Same thing here. And look, you don't want to make things up and just put them on the restricted list, but you need to show process. And so Ben's right. 
rejecting a vendor every now and then is a really good indication of process. And I would say when Ben and I first started getting really involved in data four and five years ago, we might've been rejecting directionally. This will be made up, but not, you know, it's directionally accurate. 25% of vendors, 30% of vendors, because those vendors simply did not have robust internal compliance policies and procedures around data. They didn't understand why we were asking questions about data providence. They didn't understand the laws of insider trading and how they could be a tipper. and We could be a tippy with respect to alternative data. And so sometimes we rejected vendors just for that reason, because there was just no process there. So we couldn't get comfortable. Sometimes we would reject a vendor. Then I remember a, a cell phone porting vendor and their data yeah. seemed to violate a federal act. And so we rejected it. And Nowadays, that 30%, 25, 30%, it's probably 10%. It might even be less than that. It's rare that we were rejected vendor. It's not a never. There are certain vendors in China with whom we haven't been able to get comfortable, be it from a scraping or other perspective, because it appears to be a little more wild west over there from a data perspective, just like it was here six, seven years ago. And so we might reject a vendor now for any number of reasons. It happens less often, but there is some value, as Ben says, a really important point that we don't talk about enough. There is some value in your file when the SEC comes, seeing in the file, oh, they rejected this vendor or that vendor because it shows you do have some process. And then if you accept the vendor that later turns out to be problematic, like an app Annie, it's a little more defensible because the SEC looks at you and says, well, you know, they did their diligence. They were satisfied. There are other vendors with respect to which they did diligence and were not satisfied. It's harder, I think, for the staff then to blame you for incompetent or loose diligence on the vendor you approve who turns out to be problematic if you've in fact rejected other vendors in the past. Yeah, let, let me make two other comments that you just prompted me to think about, Peter. Number one, I think regardless of the size of the organization, which is, you know, I was talking about sort of, you know, what the process is. And I think gonna, there's going to be less sympathy for the SEC, you know, in size and on the issue of onboard. You know, they're keenly focused on ensuring that compliance is involved in the process and involved early. And so whether you're a five-person organization or a 500-person organization, if you are using alternative data, you should make sure that your compliance person, who may be wearing dual hats in many instances, like the officer, the chief operating officer, has a significant role in the onboarding and review process of these data vendors. That's number one I wanted to point out. Number two, which we didn't touch on yet, is so once you've onboarded a data vendor, is it done? You know, are you done and then you just move on and now you never have to look at them again? The answer to that is absolutely not. There's clearly, and the SEC has been clear on this and through you know, the exam process on two things. Number one, they're not expecting you to treat every vendor as equally risky, right? So our recommendation, and I think most of our larger clients and more sophisticated clients who use alternative data have like a kind of they have a, you know, spreadsheet or some kind of internal tracking system of all of their research vendors. And that not just data vendors, research vendors. And then they kind of have risk weighting about who may be, you know, maybe you know, need to, to review more frequently. For example, an app data provider is probably a little bit more risky on the spectrum than sell-side research from a broker dealer, just to use an extreme example. And so in that case, if you're just picking on, on the app providers, you know, which we seem to be in this throughout, the, throughout today's session, is you know, should you be reviewing them at least once a year or maybe more than once a year? Certainly more than once a year, if news comes into the market, whether it's specifically about that data vendor or in the case like, you know, of App Annie, it came out that you may be using other app providers similar or have at least comparable kind of data sets to what an App Annie may be providing. You should be re-upping your diligence, getting on the phone with them, asking to explain what they do, you know, how they do things differently, what their compliance procedures are. But at a minimum, I think what the expectation is going to be for your 
you know, riskier, like if you put it into a red, amber, green, red being the most risky, yellow, medium, and green, kind of the lowest risk profile. At a minimum, you should be on an annual basis on your, probably your red and if not your amber vendors, having one, a bring down certificate, of meaning that you're saying, hey, tell me if anything has changed in your DDQ responses. And then secondly, probably getting on the phone with them again, at least annually, and having a check-in call to say, you know, what's gone on, anything changed, what's happening with your business. You know, that can be a big undertaking. And so something, you know, you got depending on how many vendors you have. So planning that and making sure that you have that process in place on a recurring basis is sort of a key feature, I think, to the compliance process as well. Yeah, and that makes me think of something as we bounce back and forth. As clients who use a lot of vendors, and there are many of them, what they have started to think about more and more seriously and more and more often is re-upping diligence, as Ben says. And then it's exactly what Ben says. You just have to do essentially a triage analysis and group, right? Ben has some experience with this. Bucket your vendors. So I'm making this number up. You have 100 vendors. You're not going to be able to diligence 100 vendors in a month, right? It's not going to happen. The SEC understands that. You diligence them all at the beginning. And so now the question is, which one should we re-up and how often? Well, you need to risk tier them, right? Red, green, yellow, or whatever you want to do that the app providers, and again, not to pick on the app providers, the app providers, the geolocation providers, those are probably on in the red category. And the subscription services, which in some senses can be data, those are in the green category. And then maybe the scrape vendors are in the yellow category. Maybe they're in the red. So I don't want to oversimplify it, but you need to conduct some sort of risk matrix exercise with respect to your list of vendors. And now at the start of the year, it's probably a good time to do it and say to yourself, over the course of the next 12 months, we're going to re-diligence 50% of our vendors. And then the next 12 months, the next 50%, or maybe it's all of them next year, depending on how many you have, but you're just going to risk tier them sequentially based on your evaluation of risk of the data. And then also, of course, your evaluation of the vendor itself. So certainly if you're doing business with App Annie, you should be re-diligencing App Annie now. You should have already done it over the last 30 days, or at least started to. App Annie is, is of course, inundated with such requests. They have a new DDQ that is a lot to get through, let's put it that way. And so you'll want to re-diligence App Annie. Look, there is some thought that right now App Annie post-SEC investigation is as clean a vendor as you could find. And so, and that may be your conclusion, but you still need to go through the diligence process. And we've already seen investors start to ask clients, do you do business with App Annie? If yes, are you re-diligencing them? How are you comfortable? How did you get comfortable in the first instance? And if no, why not? So we know that the regulator is going to ask you, and we know that your investors are going to ask you about folks with whom you do business, not just App Annie. I think all app providers right now, it's fair to say Sensor Tower, Apptopia, all those providers are getting lots of questions from their clients. And their clients are getting questions from their clients. And so you do need to risk tier. Ben, I don't know if you just want to follow up on that for a minute. I know you have a lot of experience with that. Yeah, we've done it with some clients where we've, we've evaluated, you know, at a very detailed level, the type of data providing they provide, history of the company, you know, how long they've been in business, and really getting into the weeds of the clients and working with the data science teams to understand, is this really kind of on the spectrum of where a regulator may be more inclined to be evaluating it or where it's maybe a little bit more difficult, at least for a compliance person to necessarily completely understand how, how data is sourced versus on the very other end of the extreme, you know, an expert network, which is, you know, a lot, you know, right. that's pretty obvious who the data, exactly. the data source is coming or just sell side research from Goldman Sachs, more you pick your broker, it doesn't matter. And trying to really, and we've done this with, with some clients where you, you take a hundred vendors 
and you literally put them into buckets, try and put them into buckets. It's not going to be perfect, but that's not what we're saying is necessary. You just want to have a process where you sort of on a regular basis, and maybe it's you know quarterly for some people, maybe it's a non-annual process for others, uh, just depending on the, the level of activity you have. And one thing we haven't talked about also within this process is, is web scraping, which is you know another whole other sort of well, set of alternative data that can either be purchased or actually conduct, you know, that process can be conducted internally. So but in any case, that's the kind of exercise you want to be doing. And some people can build systems because they're very large organizations and they have the resources and, and budget to do that. Others are just doing a spreadsheet and breaking it out into a simplistic red, amber, kind of green set of groupings. Only one thing I'll add, and then we'll start to go to the look forward piece of this, is what Ben said about perfect is right. The Advisors Act doesn't require you to be perfect. Policies and procedures reasonably designed to prevent violations. Policies and procedures reasonably designed. That's all you want to be able to show the staff with respect to data as well. We have policies and procedures. This is what, what our policies and procedures say we will do with respect to each data vendor on the way in while we're using the data and if we renew the data, number one. And number two, that you're actually following those policies and procedures, as we say with every aspect of a compliance program. Write down what you're going to do. And then most importantly, actually do what you wrote down, because it's better to actually write down a little bit less and do that than the right set. The worst thing you can do, we always think, or one of the worst, is write something down, say you're going to do it and not do it. That's certainly a pitfall you want to avoid. And the same for data. One other thing that I just thought of that is worth mentioning that we see a lot of lately and it's an easy mistake to make is you diligence a vendor, you do a great job diligencing them, robust DDQ, great call, great memo, negotiate an excellent contract, buy data. And then a year and a half later, your data scientists say, oh, they have another new product we want to try. Well, you need to diligence that new product. You can't just rely on your initial diligence of the vendor itself and the first product you bought. If they have a second offering, you now need to diligence the data provenance of that second offering. Very important. And sometimes folks forget that. And then all of a sudden you're using data that you haven't really diligenced. Yeah, you've diligenced the vendor and you think the vendor itself is solid and has a compliance program and has the right people in place, but you have no idea as to the source and provenance of that second new set of data. Yeah, I think emphasizing these memos, and I, they don't have to be written by outside law firms. Sometimes some clients haven't done oh, that. Ben, way. they always need to be written by an outside law firm. <laughs> right, what exactly. Yeah, of course. No, but, but there's two points to it. Number one, it allows the firm, your, your firms, to control the narrative as to why you got comfortable with the vendor. That's a really important thing, right? Number two, even if it is written by counsel, you're gonna write it in a way that you're totally comfortable disclosing it to the SEC and making you look like a totally, as a strategic matter, a tactical matter, whatever you wanna call it, an immediate willingness to say, well, you know, why did you get comfortable with this matter? Well, we have this privilege memo, but you know what, we're gonna share it with you. And it makes you look really cooperative when you're dealing with an examiner, right? And number three, we all have a lot of stuff on our plates every day, particularly people who work at funds. You know, Peter and I both worked at funds. We understand there's a million things going on. You can't remember everything. And so having that memo is just so oftentimes a really great way to just be able to say, oh, I don't remember, but I now I'm reading this and I completely refreshed my recollection of, of why we got comfortable with this in a very quick way. You know, those memos, I don't know that enough people, I think in our minds, you know, looking at our clients, I think our clients are, are trained by us to do that. But if I look at the industry as a whole, I'm not sure that, that that practice has fully been adopted. And so we strongly encourage, you know, that practice to take place. We should probably talk about, you know, the year ahead, Peter, yep. as we go through into 2022. And I think it's just going to continue to be an exciting time for, for funds, you know, private equity funds. We, we're seeing get, dive more into this 
use alternative data and trying to source deals or just help their portfolio companies. Hedge funds, we, you know, from our, as, as most of you probably have seen, you know, we put out this amazing, we believe is an amazing sort of benchmarking survey. You know, the people are going to continue to increase their consumption and budgets for data. And we think there's going to continue to be, I think as we've, you know, if you haven't inferred it yet, we've said it pretty obviously, some more regulatory scrutiny on this, on the space. If nothing else, certainly a core part of an exam process for folks who are using data. Let's talk about that core part. So we had the opportunity, great opportunity at Eagle a couple months ago to interview two folks from the SEC. One was from enforcement out in San Francisco who had participated in the App Annie case. And of course, they're always a little bit hamstrung as to what they can say, but it was still really interesting around the margins. And then one was someone from a new emerging risk unit they have, examinations, not enforcement, who was a data expert, really forthcoming, good guy. And we talked about the extent to which data is part of routine exams. And so I think it's probably, we probably haven't gotten to the point yet where every single routine exam, whether of new registrant or existing registrant, has a bunch of data questions. But it sounds like the SEC never going to tell you what they're going to do before they do it. But it sounds like we're pretty darn close. I think it's fair to say now that when you next get examined, they're going to ask you about what data you consume and your program. And they're going to start there. And if you have six data vendors, there's not going to be much. They're going to talk to you about one and about your policies and procedures. If you have 106, it's going to be a large part of the exam and you should be ready for it. And as Ben says, you've got a lot going on. You've got a hundred things going on every day, but this needs to be a really important part of your compliance program because your regulator and your investors are starting to ask more and more questions about it. And we know that that's definitely the case. So if you haven't started to adopt the program, and that means policies, procedures, this three parts that we talked about, this DDQ that fits your organization, some sort of follow-up diligence phone call, memorializing those phone calls, and agreements that have robust representations and warranties. If you haven't started to do that, now's the time. And the app, app Annie should have been the wake-up call. It's definitely time to do so. I think in terms of what we expect to see from a regulatory and legislative perspective, I think Bennett, we expect more cases, right? There'll, there'll yeah. be a second case. I don't know if it's next year, but you know, I, if I had to bet, I'd bet it would be. There'll be a second case next year because the SEC is really digging in now with other vendors and with examinations, with registrants who are being examined. And then the other that we've talked about that we should spend, I don't have much time, we should spend just a couple minutes on is Congress. So one of the things that we had always thought Congress would do is legislate this question of consent of the user. And, you know, we all click through every day on pages and pages of reps and warranties and consents we give app providers and we just check the box, we scroll to the bottom, we check the box and we click OK. We don't read that. No one ever reads that. And so what we thought would happen is that Congress would say something along the lines of, hey, the consent to use of my geolocation data, the tracking that article in the New York Times from December of three or four years ago now, it needs to be more prominent. It needs to be in big font, red letters at the top, and it needs to be a separate thing you need to check so that, you know, we all scroll through that 10 pages, but so that we'd really actually be, consent would be informed. Informed consent is what I'm getting at. So that we would say, we give you app provider, Starbucks, whatever it is. I give you permission to take my data on a de-identified anonymized basis, mind you, but, and sell it on, on that de-identified anonymized basis. And so we thought that would happen. Apple sort of stole the thunder a little bit from that. From Congress, we'll get back to Congress in a minute. Apple came out with its new iOS, and that's that tracking click I was talking about before, where you have to say when you use an app for the first time after you upload, upload the new iOS earlier this year, 
you have to say, hey, I will allow you to track me, Starbucks. Yes, you can track me. And that's a big one. Apple's always out there. We see all the ads on TV about privacy and how they, I'll use the word purport, but how they say they care about your privacy. And so it's not surprising that Apple came out with that. One really important point follows from that, and I don't think we know the answer yet. Ben, maybe you'll have an opinion on this, is now that people can opt out of being tracked more easily, right? That it pops up on your screen and you must answer a simple one sentence question about tracking and permission to track. The big question coming from that welcome addition was, do we think that will degrade the volume, the size of the data sets our clients are buying? And look, that's not really something we're competent to opine on, but we do know our clients are looking all the time now at, hey, is the data set I bought a year ago, is the population size in that data set just smaller because more people are opting out? And is it so much smaller that the data is not useful anymore? Probably not. I, don't, I haven't heard that from anyone yet. I'll see. I'm curious what Ben says. Or is the data set smaller? It's still useful, but maybe I should be paying less for it because it's a smaller data set. We saw that same question with GDPR years ago. Would data sets with EU population samples become less useful? I don't think we ever really saw much degradation in terms of the size and usefulness of the data there. But I think we need to be mindful of that over the next X months as our clients continue to look at that. And we know that people in the industry are looking at that. Before we get to Congress, Ben, I'll let you jump. Yeah, no, I, 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 mean, look, I think the one thing you just, you know, is yeah, still the remaining unnoticed is there going to be federal privacy legislation. I think whenever yeah. we, we've talked to experts outside the U.S. on these various sessions, one of the things is they are starting in many jurisdictions, China, which we just heard recently about, is significant amounts of privacy legislation at a, at a, at a federal level they passed that's being that's impacting the ability to to get data out of, out of China, out of Brazil, Colombia, those kind of jurisdictions where they're focusing on unclear as to where that goes. I don't have a strong view, Peter, quite frankly, on, on the utility of the data, but I, I do see what's amazing is I remember when Google sort of said you can't use an API to, hey. to read people's email. Well, there's the one thing we love about this, this job and about this part of our practice is people are continuously innovating. So they said, okay, well, I can't do, use an API, but I, I can do an add-in to, you know, that, that I'll give you, I'll clean up your inbox and you'll give me access to it, right? And, that, you know, and then they get e-receipts without using an API. So they're not technically violating Google's terms. But I think the point is, as users, it's really important to continue to see if, you're, if you know you're using e-receipt data or things of that nature that you're constantly like keeping your eye on what's happening. And we'll, you know, we obviously pay attention also, so try and keep our clients up to date. But sometimes it's just an overwhelming amount of stuff to try and track all the time. Keeping an eye on those things, if they're a critical part of your investment team's process and utilization of that type of information. The other thing I want to touch on as we run out of time is web scraping. And I think, you know, the last thing we saw this year in 2021, the LinkedIn case went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court kind of said, you know what? We don't really have a view. I'm significantly paraphrasing for for, for non-lawyers. Go back to the circuit court in California and they got to re-decide this. That decision, as, as Peter, you've heard that Peter and I talk about, you know, over the years, was a really well-reasoned, you know, judicial legal opinion. So I think as a predictive matter, we're not going to see the much of a change in the outcome of the decision in the Ninth Circuit, which means if that if we are right, that when you look at web scraping from an MMPI perspective, it seemingly falls in a pretty low risk bucket as long as you are only utilizing the public facing part of a website and you're not going into an authentication gateway where you're putting in a username and password and actually by doing so clicking to agree to the terms of service affirmatively that says you should not scrape our website. So meaning 
is put simply, websites that anybody can access with a browser and a computer are public information, and therefore the government cannot bring an insider trading case because they don't check the box for material non-public, right? It's, it's public. We think that's where that's going to head this year. But also be wary when you are scraping, if you're scraping outside the United States, the same rules may not apply. China in particular is some, you know, as we've heard with Marissa over the last few couple of years, is a place where you got to be much more cautious about that. So Peter, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. No, I mean, I, I agree. Web scraping, we, we didn't talk about it, so I'm glad you brought it up. Web scraping is still a really important part of this. We need to, you know, we haven't seen any much from the staff on that, but that's one I always worry about because of the LinkedIn high Q case and it's, it's out there. So I definitely think it's one worth keeping on your radar for sure. And then the last is, and then we'll wind up, is Congress. I still think that we're going to get some federal privacy legislation because Congress isn't going to miss out on this opportunity for that. It's just obviously with so much else going on in the world and COVID and better back and tax reform, it's just a back burner. But I do think we'll see it. I think over the next two years, we will see federal privacy legislation. I think that'll be welcome because it'll give us more rules of the road and it'll make it easier to negotiate, to diligence data vendors and negotiate contracts with them. So that being said, Alan, we'll turn it over back over to you. That's a wrap for this episode of Profiting from Data. Thank you for listening. This podcast series is brought to you by Eagle Alpha, the pioneer in alternative data. To learn about Eagle Alpha's solutions for data vendors and buyers, please visit eaglealpha.com.